0: truth about stories is that's all we are. Welcome to Kiefer's Fireside, where we gather around the proverbial hearth and swap stories of adventure, daring, and how we came to be who we are.
1: All right, well, let's, let's go Yukon. But yeah. I also want to hear about your, your teaching you're being a medical instructor in Gaza, yeah. At, at the start of a war, at some point. Sure, sure. All right, so all right, so you're um, in the Yukon. How? U- how did she get up there? What was going on at the? At that <laughs> time? So, uh, you know, growing up, I was
0: um, I was a little socially awkward, um, and I found a lot of solace in just going out in the woods. And I grew up in the country in, in southern Ontario, a lot of farmland, not a lot of wilderness. Um, but there was this big old farm behind me and a river running through it and, and uh, you know, good sized wood lot. And I just loved, you know, I'd spend almost all my free time back there tracking animals, um, learning about like wild plants that you can eat, um, you know, and just really getting to know this piece of land um, and getting a lot, of, lot out of it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I was really into sort of like outdoor survival and this feeling of um, like yeah I wanted like that nature kind of made sense and I wanted to sort of like integrate myself into it and understand it really deeply um you know like there's there's like conservation biologists that like you know go out and do a field study for a couple months every summer on like a species of nematode and it's very like hyper focused but I always found like reading books about people that sort of lived off the land they had a, a knowledge of of uh of an ecosystem that was just really profound from being a part of it from um say if you're hunting right like getting to know the animals that live in this territory where they like to sleep where they eat where they you know where their trails go and and that kind of an intimate knowledge was really attractive to me I mean I also really you know was you know very into um like romantic ideas around like indigenous people and how they lived and um so so I you know when I was 18 I ended up um getting a job as a as a whitewater canoe guide and survival instructor after you know years <laughs> of, of honing these skills. Like I, I I could I learned how to make firewood sticks. Like uh, it's called a bow drill fire. So you make like a little bow and arrow and a and a and a spindle and uh, you know a, like a, a little handle to drive that pressure in and you notch a piece of wood and you 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 spin 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 and, and sort of like drill a hole in this wood and, and it creates this um, really hot um, coal of, of sawdust, basically, which you then kind of blow into a fire on some really dry tinder. You know, so I had, I had all these skills. And, and uh, you know, they're completely useless in the modern world, but <laughs> got me a job as a as a whitewater canoe guide slash survival instructor. So I was teaching the kids how to make like shelters in the forest if they ever got lost. And I was like, I wanted to go bigger, I wanted to go kind of more extreme I wanted to push the limits. Um, I think a way that I like that kind of drove my my psychology the way that i like i wanted to feel special was to just do something that was really extreme um to have a good story to tell (laughs) um and so yeah after after uh finishing my season of guiding i uh i didn't really feel like going to school so i packed up my stuff and uh hopped on a greyhound bus to the yukon which was a 76 hours straight like you know you'd have an hour you get off the bus and stretch your legs and grab some food you know a couple times a day but it was you know for, I'm, I'm six foot nine it was uh it was very painful but I you know I had this huge backpack with like an axe and a machete and snowshoes on the side of it and and it's kind of funny it like harkens back to the gold rush right and like I mean those guys had to haul a thousand pounds of supplies over like over this pass from the Alaskan coast to get into the Yukon I, I had a pretty easy route up there in a bus but um you know i was all packed with all my outdoor gear and my plan was i was gonna try and meet a trapper because i i spent a week (laughs) i spent a week with a trapper um in northern ontario and this guy like i was describing like he knew the land um and he you know when you're harvesting sustainably from the land like there's a whole you you really start understanding the way that the various species kind of interact with each other and the population density and okay yeah there are kind of too many beavers in this um lake and stream ecosystem so we can take out a few beavers here and that will allow room for the pups upstream to come and take over that dam like you know and i was just blown away by by the way that this guy understood the land and i mean i also just he was a badass i remember him like <laughs> driving his skidoo and he had his like machete out and he was like chopping trees as he went like making his trail and it reminded me of this like the snowmobile cavalry right
1: like were you like were you like, like this winter a winter, exact, a winter like, mad exactly exactly what i wanted <laughs>
0: You know it was it was high adventure right um how did your parent how did your parents feel about you going off and doing this instead of going to school so have you ever heard of the the book in the movie into the wild by chris mccandless uh I mean, was, i've definitely heard of it's, it it's, it's it. written about chris mccandless so this was a guy again a little bit awkward a little bit kind of socially alienated who found a lot of solace in the wilderness and he ended up um, going up to Alaska and kind of getting off on the side of the road and just carving his way into the bush with kind of minimal equipment. And for a while he kind of lived off the land. And then he, um, ended up eating, uh, like harvesting this, what he thought was an edible plant, but it actually has a a toxin in the, in the kind of root of the plant. And he slowly poisoned himself, um, and became so weak that he couldn't actually kind of ford the river to get back to the highway to, to get out. And he died in there. But it's a a very interesting story of this guy's journeys. He also did a journey down the Colorado River, like into Mexico and, you know, very kind of survivalist stuff and ended up reading this book and I left it out in in my parents' living room. And then I got on the bus for the Yukon. So my mom ended up reading this book as I was about a kid going off into the wilderness and not making it. Did you hear from them? Did you have a communication with them? My poor mother. My poor mother. Yeah. So yeah. did she not know that you were going? <laughs> no, no, she knew I was going, but you know, she was just like, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to start university, like, you know. Anyway,
1: um, so uh, yeah, my plan, And I've... and you really you did this just because you liked you liked the outdoors. You wanted to do something crazy. Yeah, I wanted no other story to
0: tell. The, the you know, I had this like this thing. My friends used to talk about like the Kiefer, what was it, the Kiefer legend or something? And and it was just like I would always you know just as a way to kind of impress my friends, like take it to the next level, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of different things that I did. And you know, I was again it was like it's kind of funny doing a bit of psychoanalysis, but it was totally out of like insecurity and just wanting to be special, right? But anyway, it, it led me to do some interesting things. I, I thing feel there. that. I understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I um well good for you for taking the step. Yeah so you're you're <laughs> you take the greyhound bus up there. Yeah. yeah. You're like a giant you're yeah. crammed in there you meet well, this- like
0: at, at one point um you know i ended up because it's just exhausting like sleep deprivation in this chair with your knees like pushed up around your shoulders so i ended up actually lying on the floor of the Grey- greyhound bus like sliding underneath <laughs> a whole bunch. and i was underneath like three different seats um you know and i got a few hours sleep that way or because inevitably like if i was sitting in the aisle seat my knee would sort of bulge out into the aisle and the bus driver would like pull the bus over and be like and you come and whack my leg get your fucking leg back in there <laughs> because there's like little old ladies that need to go back to the bathroom and they might and it's you know fair play right uh-huh. and, and it was funny on the way out um because you're leaving the big city at toronto and then you're going and you know it's kind of a milk run through all these small northern towns and uh, a big number of people on the bus were people who'd just been released from jail and were like going back to their home communities um so it's demographically like a super interesting bus trip and you know going across the country canada is a really big place and there's a lot of resentment and alienation i guess kind of like maybe there is in sort of the uh flyover states versus uh urban america so there's that kind of vibe well
1: anyway yeah so um, you make it up there you meet this badass fur trapper who yeah it was a a what it's not as easy (laughs) to you know i
0: I thought i'd just walk into a bar and you know buy everyone around and be like all right who's a trapper here and uh, it (laughs) wasn't quite that easy um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I mean uh, I want to kind of get to the, the the juicy story. So, okay. um, I'm going to skip over some stuff. I ended up um actually because it wasn't trapping season yet. I got there in like September um and the animals like you know, they don't the season doesn't open and and also like the fur's not high quality until it's like, okay. bitter cold out, right? So,
1: okay. and for, also off, and also like
0: up there, you know, you're you're into sort of at you know, winter solstice, you kind of got 3 hours of daylight, so it's kind of better to start trapping end of January when you start getting a bit more sunlight to work with, right?
1: So what's it like up there? Like what are the buildings like? How how many people are up there where you're at? Um Yukon well, uh, has about 30,000
0: people and okay. probably 25,000 live in in one city Whitehorse, which is just a huge kind of government town. And I mean the buildings aren't they should be different, but <laughs> you know, it's pretty non-creative sort of uh, okay. standard.
1: So were you
0: were you in that city? Yeah. So I, I, I got up there, it wasn't trapping season yet. Um, and, uh, so I ended up looking around for something else cool to do. And, uh, dog, dog racing is a big thing up there. So like the Adidarod and the Yukon quest, these like thousand kilometer, um, dog races. And so I ended up, um, uh, meeting a dog musher who needed a hand, like needed some work, you know, like, I forget I don't know what it's called. Like there's horse wrangling. and I think it's dog handling anyway. So I, um, ended up at his place and, he'd actually bought a whole bunch of logs to build the log cabin. And I was just an eager beaver. And he was like, well, if you build a log cabin on my land, like you can live in it for a year. And if you want to help out in the dog yard and so I ended up building a log cabin there, um, and, uh, helping him train his sled dogs. And, uh, that was even before the snow was on the ground. So he would hook up a, like a quad, um, and put like eight dogs in front of it and run it in a really low gear to give them resistance and kind of do resistance training with them. <laughs> and I mean, <clears throat> you know it's g and hoff or like left and right and uh you know whoa boys to slow them down and and it's just interesting like learning how to communicate like and work with animals um because you're not in control when you have eight dogs in front of you like it's a cooperative thing you, you know you're not by physical force you know they you, you gotta earn their respect and things like that right so um so yeah uh you know, and then hooking them up to the sleigh, and then I mean, it, God forbid, if you fall off of the the dog sled, you know, they just keep they just keep freaking going, right? And then you're yeah. running after them with like this huge snowsuit on and big boots, you know, like plunging through the snow, trying to catch up to the dogs that got away. And <laughs> what one time I was on the quad, and uh, they saw a grizzly bear in the woods, and they chased after. They went off trail, like just through the way I'm, I'm on the quad behind getting pulled along trying to slam the brakes on and like gear down as low as we can go to and they're just you know haul, i think the wheels had basically stopped on the quad but they were just they were so eager to chase this bear <laughs> um so there were adventures like that my fondest memory of the uh of this uh dog musher's place was he had a whole bunch of puppies like i think probably eight puppies and they were all in a little enclosure and they never really left the dog yard and uh so i don't know how old they were maybe like eight weeks or something maybe a bit older but i i took them out for a run and went out for a jog and i had this like little pack of like husky dogs uh, running after me and and they never left the dog yard right so we were like running around and, and like came to this like stream and they all like bunch up bundle up because like what the hell is this stuff like for you know and then they like put their toes in it and kind of feel it out and i like you know lift them <laughs> up and put them
1: in it and they're like water cool and like, <laughs> you know, so super fond memories of that um so how do you meet this how did you meet this guy who you built a log cabin for? uh god i actually don't really it wasn't at the bar It wasn't at the bar there was a there was a bar though
0: there was like a bar you frequented there the white horse has um the most bars per capita in canada um so classic (laughs) yeah and i mean really high rates of alcoholism as well unfortunately but um so there's there's a bunch of bars and actually this is a little tangent but there's this amazing um event every year called sourdough sam and every bar sponsors like the stud of their bar (laughs) Um, and they compete so they go to each different bar, and each bar will have like a talent thing they need to do. So it might be, and and each bar will sort of pick something that favors their sourdough Sam guy, right? Uh And so it might be like singing at one place, and so like there'll be like 12 or 15 guys, and they've all got to sing, and then everyone at the bar kind of judges them and and they get a score, and then they'll go on to the next bar like next week, and it might be dancing, like, and they might need to do like couples dancing. You know, and, and if you, if you win, you get like $15,000 in a new F-150 truck. So it's like, on, <laughs> it's a big deal. Anyways, yeah, so the, bar, the bar culture was awesome. Lots of great live music and stuff. All right. Um, but yeah, I wasn't in it for the city. Um, so I don't remember really remember how, I think it was probably word of mouth that I met the the dog mushroom, but anyway, that wasn't what I was there to do. So yeah, this meeting, was just uh, a little detour on the way. <laughs> I was just, you know, waiting for this trapping uh, experience to open up. And I actually had to do a course, like you have to do a hunting course you have to do a trapping course. Um, and it was actually at the trapping course that I met my future boss, uh, who I'd work for in the next spring, uh, who was a hunting outfitter. So up in the Yukon, they basically, the government's like divided up the Yukon into 15 or 20 different territories where they give a license for uh, someone to have the exclusive right to guide foreign hunters right so there's a big industry of really rich Americans mostly coming up there and spending you know twenty thirty thousand dollars for a 10 day hunting trip wow. um and it's a big part of the local economy and uh i was like bookmark um yeah i want to go into the middle of nowhere and like i never really hunted right I, my parents weren't mm-hmm. hunter types right so I was like fuck i'll get to learn how to hunt and and it's all on horseback and stuff like that so I was like, <laughs> this-
1: that adds a whole other level to
0: it and that's kind of more where the story is going because i want to tell you a story about um um this this uh kind of disaster that that happened a wilderness disaster um so trapping season very i could tell whole
1: stories about that but let's just bypass the whole trapping thing okay so uh, i do want you to tell me about like your first couple times out though like how you got into it in terms of trapping or yeah like what was your first time out like like this is a. This is something totally new for you. Yeah, I mean I'd like snared rabbits in the farm behind my house and and
0: I'd like skinned squirrels and stuff like that and rabbits and 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 that kind of thing but yeah it's um I'll tell you the story about the I caught a wolverine I didn't mean to but I caught a wolverine. <laughs> um so basically like a trap line like you have a series of camps and then you have like trails that go between them. And you kind of travel the trap line, and you kind of set your traps, and then you redo the bait. And you, you know, the animals that you catch, you then bring them back to one of your camps, and you skin them and whatever. Um, and so uh, yeah, I had I was living in a prospector tent, which is a canvas wall tent, and I had a little wood stove in it. And those they're affectionately known as hippie killers um, because they're this really thin gauge metal stove that you feed from the top, and um, if you put too much kindling in you know, it gets red hot. Like the, it looks like the metal starting to melt almost. And if it's air hungry, it starts to kick the lid off and the little boom, boom,
1: boom, boom, boom
0: um just as it's kind of trying to suck in more air for the combustion (laughs) this and the hippie killer thing is you know hippies come back from a night out drinking and they they fill the stove up with a you know kindling and they pass out and their cabin burns down anyway so it was like it was kind of like a minus 50 kind of winter and i was living in a in a canvas wall tent with a oh my gosh little wood stove and um so one time i was moving between camps and uh you know, you, you the, the traps that you build. It's mostly we're trapping lynx in that area, um, and uh, which is like you know large bobcat of the north kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so you and it's interesting. Like their population cycle in these seven year cycles, which fits with this rabbit because they almost exclusively hunt rabbits. And so there's this diseases that will build up when the population gets too large. Um, and so your rabbits will kind of say we're at the the bottom of that um, the nadir of their population cycle, which does these seven year waves. Um, so they've been wiped out by disease when they're overpopulated. Then they build back up, and then they get overpopulated again, and they, there's a big disease and a die off. And the lynx population follows that, but it's like a year behind. And so at the end of that seven year period, where there's tons of rabbits, tons of lynx are around, but then the rabbits die off and the lynx starve. And so as a trapper, you're kind of aware of that rhythm and cycle. And so this was a year where the links were all going to like a bunch of them were going to starve anyway. So it's kind of like pruning the population.
1: Oh, wow. Really interesting stuff. It right? changes the, uh, the ethical calculus. Yeah, no, right. like
0: you're, you're, you're living kind of in, in a sort of harmony, right. Which is, uh, which is really interesting. Right. And, and like, if this is your trapping area, if you over trap it, you're screwing yourself the next year, right. Or you're so there, you know, there certainly are like unscrupulous trappers that might make a kind of a short term, um, effort on their land but generally speaking i mean people that like hold these trapping concessions like they're pretty respectful people and they're you know they care about kind of maintaining the populations of the animals It's and it's just like yeah it's like i don't know harvesting i'm trying to think what the analogy would be here but like yeah you just don't want to over harvest because you'll you'll hurt your long-term viability
1: so you're selling? do you like what are these going for the the people who come up and pay for the hunting trip keep them or do you sell so yeah, this them? is
0: this is separate like so generally you'll sell them to like a fur trader and then he'll sell them on to like the big auction houses in the south and then they'll be made into fancy fur coats and stuff like that okay. which all sounds kind of ridiculous and, and like you can hear the sort of like anti-fur lobby just being like this is you know this is just for like super rich people to Whereas a status symbol, and there's all this cruelty, and I mean it's very different, like trapping in the Yukon versus like a fur mill, like uh, you know where they're raising mink in captivity, and um, yeah. and it's it's like really essential to supporting an industry that employs especially indigenous people and gives them the opportunity to sort of carry on with a ancient you know cultural tradition, right, mm-hmm. of hunting and trapping, and it's actually you know the anti-fur movement actually had a really big impact because it just bottomed out prices. Um, you know, and a link skin used to go for like a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars. You know, and you caught like 10 links and you could, you know, buy a new skidoo or you could, you know, whatever you could provide for your family, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, the, the price had crashed when I was up there. It was like a hundred, two hundred dollars for a link skin or something. So, um, that had a really big impact and it really broke a tradition of, you know, elders taking youth out on the land and the youth getting into it and, you know, being able to stay in their communities and things like that so there's
1: there's like all these impacts that you know yeah, southern I, activists and uh i mean African- i gotta i gotta say even myself like i i wasn't tuned into that you know the more like the non-fur mill side of it like all, all i had mm-hmm. seen was were like videos you know Yeah, where like you're growing the minks, and then they they're not in the wild, and you just kill them right there and rip the skin off, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that's not it's not too safe. I gotta say, um, like I'm a hater of like Canada goose stuff with the fur, the coyote fur. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so like it's good to hear that perspective. Yeah, and I mean, wolverine fur,
0: like a wolverine fur on your on your hoodie, is like a big part of traditional uh parkas in the far north because it doesn't fog up and not like the ice doesn't stick to it it's, it's pretty cool
1: nice. so anyway
0: the story of the wolverine you, you build these like log cabin little structures and you put a, a trap in the front of them and you hang some bait at the back so the lynx would put its head through the, the trap door trigger uh um a trigger and then it slams shut and it just breaks their neck in a second so it's it's very um um what um and, uh, you know, and you usually you're, you catching beaver as well. And you use a bit of beaver meat as the bait. And you also rub the, there's this gland on the back of a beaver called the castor gland. And it, it's in the most amazing smell. It's used in, um, high-end perfumes, um, Chanel number no. five. I'm not sure if they still have it or if they synthesize it chemically now, but this was like a big deal. Yeah. The beaver, beaver pheromones. Um, funny, it's funny the way humans interact with the environment and like the products that we use and whatnot. Kidding. Anyway, so you have all these traps along the trap line. And, um, and Wolverines are pretty fucking smart. And so this Wolverine had stumbled onto the trap line and then went over and saw the first kind of log cabin trap. And he looked in and he was like, oh, there's a trap there. And so he lifted the roof off, like knocked the logs off, went and got the bait and then went back on the trail, got <laughs> to the next one. And he just did this for like 16 of my trap sets. And, um, <laughs> and the other thing about Wolverines is they're kind of skunky, like they're in the same kind of family And so they can really like have a foul musk, Um, you know, and they're, they're like an interesting species. Like they're a carrion eater. Right. And they, they're like ecologic niche is to um, find kill sites of like wolves or bears. And they're the one animal in that ecosystem that has jaws that are strong enough to crack the bones and get, get the marrow. So that's their like ecologic niche is eating the marrow and they're known as being like pretty. Like they punch above their weight. Like they can sometimes scare a bear off of uh, a kill site because they're just so vicious. Wow. Um, Anyway, and and so I was like, this, you know, the series of traps that were getting, um, uh, you know, sabotaged um, were leading up to my wall tent. And I was like, if this guy goes in my wall tent, he's going to get into my food cache. He's going to eat all my food and he's probably going to musk all over my shit. Like skunk spray. And it's not as bad as a skunk, but still not nice. Anyway, so the last trap between between you know the where i was and, and the in the wall tent um i guess he just gotten so full off of all the meat <laughs> that he was like ah it's a lot of work stripping the roof off of this so he went through the door no 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 sorry he went through the roof but then he was like i don't want to climb back out so he went out through the doorway and unfortunately that was like i'd set the trap for people going or for animals, not people, animals going in through it. So it's triggered to break the neck, but he went on the way out. And so it hit him in the mid body. So that was kind of bad because he'd obviously like thrown like the, the whole, like, you know, you're building this, this log cabin trap out of like logs like this. And they were thrown all over the place. It was a bit sad because I think he'd had a, a pretty rough way out, but yeah, I mean, and I used to, so I, I would, you know, take these like frozen wow. frozen carcasses back to my wall tent and you'd have to kind of thaw them out a little bit. Um, so i'd hang them up you know not too close to the stove the wood stove and uh, i remember kind of like kind of crying when i'd look at them like they're just so beautiful right like the lynx it's like a little tiger right or a wolverine like incredible To and i would i was uh, like into art back then so i'd sketch them and draw them and stuff and
1: wow
0: yeah yeah i didn't really i didn't mean to catch a wolverine i mean they're pretty rare um you know so you, you don't necessarily want to be trapping them i mean their population density is pretty pretty scarce you know and they really only exist in these you know really large uninterrupted bits of wilderness like in the yukon um
1: did you sell yeah. it
0: yeah in the end yeah yeah
1: how much do you remember how much it went for
0: i think 500 bucks yeah. and that, that it would have only made like, like any 100%. other
1: transaction
0: <laughs> yeah right well, That
1: not you're saying uh and dude, like I, I was a, like i was like
0: a militant vegetarian and like when i was like 12 to 16 or something like and a preachy bastard at that so i've i've lived some like extremes right and like you know it's, it's interesting how you kind of like morally make peace with with what you end up doing and Yo, i
1: um, i'm in the same place right now i i say i'm a recovering vegan yeah because yeah. until the i guess a few months ago really i was i was vegetarian and and two years before, like for two years prior to that, I had been vegan and like also militant. Like I would lecture yeah. people, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing. And then now I'll, I'll eat like some meat and I'm just like, why am I OK with this? Yeah. Like what in me is. It's your over DNA.
0: There? It's your DNA. What I was is- just listening to Václav Smil, uh, who's a really brilliant biologist slash polymath. And he was just talking about how for the longest time we weren't sure if chimpanzees ate meat um but then we you know discovered that they mostly eat smaller monkeys and they you know they spend a a lot of energy chasing after these little monkeys and they just rip them piece to piece while they're still alive basically and one of the large functions of it is actually to attract a mate because if you got a little piece of meat on you then the female chimps come and generally that leads to a a mating scenario um
1: (laughs) yeah yeah like thought they a... were all innocent huh oh yeah i mean chimps are pretty <laughs> from vegetarian to like cannibalistic hyper violent sexual <laughs>
0: and maybe bonobos are different i know a lot of people who are like you know yes we're, we're related to chimpanzees but we're also related to bonobos and they like rather than fighting each other they often settle their differences by like cuddling and having sex which is yeah it's <laughs> pretty funny but um <laughs> yeah and and i mean just wow. i mean he's he's this guy's a really interesting guy who looks at sort of energy across um species and across human history and different cultures and just like the value of fatty meat was was has been really huge throughout evolution just yeah. as a, like a calorie dense food that allowed us to shrink our guts and i'm, I'm assuming brain.
1: you're up here you're in the yukon it's like minus 50 degrees Yeah. And that's all you want to eat is
0: fat. All you want to eat is fat. Like I I would make, I had my friend over for, for pasta dinner one night and I had like a big bag of pasta and I had a pound of butter and I just (laughs) boiled the pasta and threw the butter in there and we just ate butter pasta. And like, it's kind of like, if you think about a, a fire, like, you know, your simple carbs are just like the kindling you know and your protein is like the mid wood and then your fat is like the big logs that will they'll be there for you, yeah. you know I mean? so and you burn a lot of calories staying warm man i bet you, re- you reset your thermostat um and, because and, because like in you know as soon as it's like minus five everyone in the Yukon's out in a t-shirt and shorts basically because your body is just so adapted you
1: know wow and you're you're tall too you're had- tall and skinny yeah so how has that changed the food situation at all being sick well what
0: it did change was uh i I did a lot of cross-country skiing right and they don't make cross-country ski gear so much for the far north um you know they're often kind of little sporty poorly insulated boots Mm -hmm. and um yeah i almost got frostbite a few times almost lost a few toes um and i ended up making fur coverings for my cross-country ski boots which is a little challenging
1: yeah so you decided not, you trapped some stuff and instead of selling it, you decided that it would be better used making some... I wish it was that
0: romantic, but what was actually interesting was because of the anti-fur industry, everyone was getting rid of their fur coats and they were in they were in um, like Value Village and you could buy like, you oh, know, wow. a fox fur coat that was probably, you know, someone had probably spent like $8,000 on it for like 40 bucks. And I actually like stockpiled a whole bunch of fur, like... Wow. Yeah, from Valley Village at that time. I mean, Just, nowadays, it's, things have changed, but yeah, it was. So, it was people,
1: how is the market like? Like, I don't want to come too much to the present, but how is the? I got no
0: idea. I think it's recovered okay. to some degree, but yeah, yeah. you know, that, the anti fur thing was a was a big deal in my late. So, years.
1: so you were you were eighteen. Nineteen
0: I went think up, at this point, yeah.
1: Nine, Nineteen, and so you're thirty nine now. Yeah, you're about yeah. to
0: half a life ago half a life so this was this was in the mid 90s late 2000 like 2000 and 2001 September 11th was right around then one of the one of the really like interesting things so like you know we talked I was talking before about um like interacting with the land as a scientist um you know as a geologist or a Mm -hmm. conservation biologist or like actually living off of it or interacting with it in that way and that's always what like has attracted me to like hunting and trapping is i think about it as like a dialogue with the land like if you think about like leave no trace camping right you're almost like a, a an astronaut like you're bringing all this gear yeah. and true. you know super high-tech shit and you're setting up this campsite and you know you're filtering your water and everything and
1: you want to be in it but you that's and that's, and really that's really like it. really
0: appropriate for like high usage areas but in the yukon i mean it's you know, there's this vast tracts of wilderness. So you do like chainsaw camping, right? <laughs> you were leaving a little, you were building campsites that you'd come back to, right? And, uh, but also like, you know, I, oh my God, I had this, um, I was, I, I did this trip, like I was scouting a new, a new area on the trap line and figuring out like a way to build a trail and, you know, a trail that a skidoo could get up because I had to go up this really big hill at the end. Uh, it was this monkey tree, monkey Creek was where I was heading to. And I had to do a few overnights on the way, like in minus 40, minus 50. And, you know, I was, uh, I had a sled dog. I got a single, Oh fuck. This is a cool story too. I got a sled dog. Um, but the snow in the Yukon is very dry and very powdery. And so if you're doing new trail, you know, the snow's three feet deep, like the dog is up to their shoulders and they can't pull the sled. So I had, I had my snowshoes on cause I could, pa- I could sort of pack a trail and haul the sled behind me. And, uh, and the dog was running free and just, I, it was making a mockery of me just like having fun <laughs> in the snow. And I was like slogging. So I had a bit of gear with me. I think I was hauling probably a chainsaw and some other stuff. Um, and anyway, I, I ended up, uh, it was getting dark and I was looking for a place to camp and it was really cold. Like it didn't have a tent or anything. Right. Um, and so I found this area where a whole bunch of trees had blown over in a windstorm and, you know, sometimes you pull up like a big root pile. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make a lean to against this root pile. And so I like, cut a bunch of wood and made a lean-to and then put a bunch of spruce on top of that and made a spruce bed. Um, you know, so it's was, it was kind of like a, a semi-hemisphere. What am I trying to say here? Yeah, like the root, the root pile is like here. And then I had a bed here and, and the, the lean-to was going up to the root pile. And uh, I lit a fire against the root pile. And uh, it was pretty warm. And I was like, because the root pal gives you like a reflector, right? It reflects the light and the heat of the fire back at you and snuggled up with the dog on my spruce bed and this little lean to minus 40 outside, right? Big sleeping bag. And I remember like waking up in the middle of the night and the whole root system uh, had caught on fire because it was like, all of a sudden it was like really warm and really bright. And I was like, oh shit. But I had a bunch of snow next to me and I just like threw snow on it. And then I spent the night like, as it was sort of occasionally like catch on fire a little more, I throw (laughs) some snow on it and. So you know you don't have the most like restful sleeps, but there's lots of trappers like stories like that where they just sleep next to a fire and you just kind of you know you're kind of half asleep and every hour you're throwing some more fuel in the fire. In this case, I was extinguishing it or like
1: (laughs) yeah, because I mean in this case it was you know deal with the fire or freeze to death in your sleep.
0: Yeah. So this this sled dog this is a really cool story. So um, I got it off of my neighbor. Um, who who uh, was a trapper as well. And, and this trap line wasn't so far. It was probably like an hour's drive on the Alaska Highway and then 30 kilometers track in to get to my first base camp. Uh, so it wasn't super remote, but she she was a Russian lady. And I'm blanking on her name. She died of cancer a little while. It was really sad because she had a crazy life. So she was born in a gulag camp in the Soviet Union and uh, like born in the fucking camp. So all she'd known is like a slave labor, like gulag archipelago Life. And her and three or four of her friends started like planning an escape. They were gonna ski to Finland, um, through the Siberian wilderness. And they started stockpiling, like, you know, you know, you don't, not like you're having a lot of food to stockpile, right? And they like carved skis and like hid them under places and like prepared their escape. And three or four of them, like you know, made a run for it and got away from the camp and the guards and stuff, and only I think only she and one other person made it. so like the two or three of them died on the way. She gets to Finland and she ends up kind of smuggling her way across Europe, gets onto a boat that ends up in Nova Scotia. Um, and then she's just wanting to find her way to something that feels like home. So she ends up drifting up to the Yukon. And she's been you know like she was you know sexually assaulted and, and like beaten and treated horribly in the prison camp and really didn't have a lot of faith in humanity. So she just wanted to get as far away as she could from people. And the reason I'm telling this story, she's the one who who like lent me a dog, um, for my trapline, and uh, so is, she, this
1: is the is this the dog that you were with? No, no
0: it, I don't know. If, it might have been a dog that she had later, but earlier in her life, when she was younger, she had this trapline that was super remote, it was flying only. So a bush pilot flies you in with all your gear that you're gonna need for trapping that season, probably in like September, October, and then you kind of set up your camp, get everything ready, you know, prep your trapline and uh and they come back for you in like june the next year right wow right so she uh, she had a she had like a trapping season that was good um she'd set up like a, a a bunch of uh um not like a salmon wheel but uh she'd set up a bunch of um like she caught a lot of fish to feed the dogs and stuff um you know and she had some, she brought in flour and some other stuff but anyway the pilot comes like nine months later in june And, uh, she's like, you know what? I I think I'm going to stay in another year. So just come back next year and get me, um, you know, and she'd kill the moose. And she, you know, she was like, I'm good. I'm good. I've I've got what I need. You know? So she was just like such a badass, and like in in the Yukon and I guess probably in Alaska as well. Um, you know, it's full of what we call characters, right? Like just, it takes kind of a weird personality to end up drifting up there. Uh Uh, Myself included. Right. Um, I was just like, that is, that is a wild story. And, And yeah, she, she was very generous. She, lent me this dog who was good company and the dog <laughs> i didn't have like because i had to haul stuff in 30 kilometers like to my base camp wow. so i ended up mostly feeding my dog squirrels um and the way i trap the squirrels is you you uh you get a branch like a long straight like spruce or whatever and you clear off you, know, you limit and then you lean it up against um another tree and you put peanut butter along the, the log and then you make these wire um uh, i guess they're kind of like noose traps right and they're basically, so the squirrel will run up the log towards the, uh, the, the peanut butter and their neck will go through the, the snare and it'll tighten and then they'll fall off. And then they just kind of dangle there and, you know, strangle and die. Um, and so there'd be these, like my, my sticks, there'd be like three squirrels hanging off them, like, kind of Uh, like like a lynching or whatever. Right. But, um, and, uh, i remember like the first one i came to with the dog like and taking the squirrels off and like i fed the dog later that night and the dog like the next time we came across my like successful squirrel trap the dog just looked at me like you're the man <laughs> like, there's this like look of respect right like this isn't like this isn't some like you know cushy city person going off and getting some kibble at the grocery store i mean the dog was like he saw me set the trap you know, he'd he'd eaten some squirrel the night before and then we like got more squirrel and he's like saw the trap, you know, with the animal, and it was just like it was really funny. Like, yeah, Tagish was the dog's name and what was it? Tagish? It's it's named after uh I think it's named after like a river uh, in the Yukon and and a First
1: Nation, I think, called the Tagish Nation. Wow. Um yeah, he was a fun dog. He was a fun dog. Crazy times. <laughs> okay, so so a while ago you were going to say <laughs> something about hunting on horseback. I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's not, you're not
0: like with the Buffalo, like shooting arrows off of the horse. But what I meant by that is um, uh, like, there's, you're not allowed to have like quads or, or all-terrain vehicles back there. Cause it'll like scar up the landscape. Like the, and the tund- is this
1: this is on those paid hunting trips. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: So like the tundra up there, it's, it's a, you know, fragile soil and moss and stuff. And if you, you know, if you drive it, uh, quad up there an all-terrain vehicle you're gonna just rip it to shit so you have to do stuff with horses um and so yeah my my boss this guy I met on the trapping course who ended up hiring me he had about 40 horses and we had to drive with those horses to like the end of the end of the logging and mining roads like to 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 where this lake was and this river and then we had to ride for five days straight um to get these horses up into the mountains up to and where the hunting camp was And you're,
1: this, are you with rich americans this whole time no 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 this, no, is, no, no, no. this is
0: hard this is this is this is not the fun okay. i mean I, it's it's type three fun you know about type three fun no type no. one fun is just like hedonistic like it's just like you know you're just i don't know you know partying it's, it's pleasurable partying whatever easy type two fun is kind of a bit of a mixed thing where like there's some endorphins going maybe it's like you know running a marathon might be type two fun where there's like some some or not not something as extreme as the marathon you know maybe a 5k run where you like you kind of yeah. like
1: you're, you're having to push yourself but it feels good Yeah, or like enjoying studying a topic Type three fun is like a
0: slog. Like, you know, you do this wilderness trip and you flip your boat and you're freezing for a few days and, but you survive it and you're like yeah. kind of ingenious and, and like in the time it's a suffer fest, but you look back on it and you're like, fuck, that was great. I felt truly alive. <laughs> this was pure yeah. type three fun. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean I, the, the first, like I'd never ridden a horse before. Um, and my boss hired I me way to start. My boss hired me to be a horse wrangler. Like, you know, in terms of you think about how hard it is, maybe like you're thinking about yourself, like to get a job and, and, and you know, okay, but you need all this work experience. Okay. But I'm a fresh student. Like you're caught in like a catch 22 or paradox where it's just like, okay, like I'm not, I'm not qualified enough to, to do this job. Um, and in the Yukon, there's just a little more opportunity. And there's there, you know, even at that point, there's not a, like this, this hunting territory was so remote that you were in for four months straight. So there's no coming out for the weekends and it's kind of sometimes hard to find people that are that hardcore that'll do that like leave everything behind and uh be in like absolutely the like 150 air miles from the smallest town around there with an airstrip yeah. um where it's really expensive to fly in and out so you're in there for four months um and 150 air miles is, is a five-day ride through some of the harshest terrain and maybe in the world like uh you had to get to so you, you get dropped off at the end of this road. Right. And I'd never ridden a horse before. And so we're saddling up these horses and we have to push them down like this gravel road for about 15 kilometers because the, the trucks can't go further. And um, so we saddle up the horses and I got put on Big Red and Red was a, a really fun horse. Uh, but he was the leader. Like horses have a hierarchy, obviously, just like chickens, a pecking order whatever and uh red was he was going to be in the front and i don't know like the the other guides i was with they were like okay you'll stay in the back and just kind of you'll you'll learn the ropes and uh mm-hmm. just push the horses and you know it's hurting it's super fun like that that like the pleasure of being kind of like a cowboy and like hurting another animal on top of a horse is it's it's delightful and you get
1: and you got 40 of them
0: yeah you have them to push That's a horses. lot of horses and they bunch up and they find some grass they want to eat and you got to kind of ride around them and sort of like encourage them to hey, move along guys and like you know use your horse to push other horses around it's interesting but big red was like he's the leader of the pack and he's like i'm not staying in the back so he went right to the front <laughs> Led the whole way. and so he had to sometimes trot like and i'd never like like when a horse is walking and you're in the saddle okay big deal right when they start trotting like there's this rhythm that they do right and you yeah. have to learn how to post, like stand in the stirrups for one of the cycles of their their gait. Otherwise, mm-hmm. like it's this pop 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 pop, and you're just getting your ass like <laughs> like yeah. getting spanked, right? And you can get spanked like you know uh, if you don't post, you you get spanked like once per cycle of the gait. If, if, so if you do post, <laughs> if you don't post, you get spanked like four times, uh, and that cumulatively adds up to a lot of spankings. Um, and uh, anyway, so like learn, and you know, like, and you're almost falling out of the horse because you've never been a fucking horse before, right? Yeah, and um, and 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 there was a pickup truck at the back that was kind of pushing the horses, and at one point, you know, Big Red and his buddy Harley, we were up at the front, and it looked like the horses got bunched up, and so our horses kind of stopped, and we're like, you know, my horse, I was I was alone up in the front, and uh, you know, they must have found a nice patch of grass, and and. So the guy driving the pickup truck was a real redhead. Like he was like the typical kind of lose your temper redhead. And and (laughs) so he started like, like chasing these bunched up horses with the pickup truck and scared the shit out of them. I didn't know this was happening, but I, I hear like a thundering of hooves and I see a bit of a dust cloud coming and there's a stampede of 30 horses like galloping towards me and, and the psycho in this truck trying to, he was trying to get around in front of them now with the truck and pass them and they were not having it and Big Red sees them, and he's like, fuck it, well, I'm, I'm the leader, I'm going to stay out in front, and so he just picks up, like, into a gallop, and I've never galloped before, <laughs> right, and my feet fall out of the stirrups, and luckily, it's a western saddle, so there's a saddle horn, and I'm, like, holding uh-huh. on to that saddle horn for dear life, because I'm, like, if I fall, like, horses don't want to step on you, but if you fall off a horse, and there's 30 horses thundering behind you, like, yeah, you're going to get Indeed. trampled, so it was literally, like, hold on for dear life kind of thing, and I remember, uh, you know, like, just that grip on that saddle horn was wild and, uh, and I was like turning around and kind of yelling I was like Stacy stop and he couldn't hear anything right and at one point I remember like do I take one hand off the saddle horn to like you know signal like stop or and you know and I did that and I was like stop and then and then I was like and then I turned it into the I was like fuck you Stacy!" <laughs> anyway like he didn't stop eventually the horses got tired and like settled into a trot and then a walk and and then I was kind of like, shit, that was fun. Can we do that again? <laughs> um, type, type four fun, right? There. <laughs> oh my God. No, yeah, yeah. When it's like, yeah, like totally life threateningly like dangerous fun. So, you know, you get down to the end of that gravel road, and then you have to swim a river, like ford a river. And if, if, it's been a, if it's been like a wet year, then you, you might be swimming and, you know, the horse might almost be drowning and whatever. Anyway, you get across there. And then we had to ride across this marshy, area that had had a forest fire on it and so there's all these black dead trees and black branches and i was riding a white horse like not this time another time and the the branches would uh, paint the horse with the charcoal and they look like zebras like as you because it's not really a trail right and so you'd you'd push through this like muskeg bog stuff and and there was an old caterpillar track like we're talking about scarring the landscape with vehicles like they'd driven a a dc9 like caterpillar bulldozer to a mine site like 30 years ago and so it was advantageous because it was actually like a trail that you could follow but because they disturbed the permafrost in the soil you had these bog holes and they were like four feet deep five feet deep and the horses could get stuck in there and they were terrified and they didn't want to go and you had to push them and sometimes they they'd get stuck in mud up to their shoulders and if you didn't get them moving fast enough like they could drown in the muck basically right wow so that was the first day and then you get over a mountain. Pass, <laughs> that was and, the first day. <laughs> and it's hell. And it's just like, if, I mean, that's the hardest day because they don't, they do not want to go and you're, you're yeah. like, some of them always fall through and then you've got like, you're hauling on their, um, a lot of like lost all my like cowboy terms, right. But just their halter, like on one end and you're mm-hmm. like, you have to kind of whip their butts because you need to like, it's like, you got to get out of here. You got to motivate them. And it like, it feels kind of like animal cruelty, but they're going to die if you don't kind of give them a few licks. On the hindquarters, as, as someone's pulling on the front and motivate them to not give up. Did you lose uh, any horses? So, so the, yeah, day one through the Muskeg, day two, uh, you get over this mountain pass to a cabin, you kind of have a bit of a rest. And then, you know, from there on in, if you go the wrong way, you may end up in a bog hole again um, or in some rough country. But, you know, it's four more days of riding, like following a, a river up to its source, like a watershed, right? Up into the high mountains and above treeline, And, and, uh, so the long story short i mean it's it's kind of known as being like the hardest trail in and the whole you know because all these different hunting outfitters are trailing horses in and this is like it's the most remote territory i mean this this hunting concession is twelve thousand square kilometers like it's larger than some european company or european countries and so there's um there's uh it, like it's larger than luxembourg for sure but a few maybe Andorra or something and uh you know it's 12,000 square kilometers and there's probably at the peak of hunting season like 20 people on that 12,000 square kilometers maybe 30 wow. people right it's you a guide a horse wrangler and a hunter like three guys in a camp with like seven or eight horses and um and you're you're going out hunting every day and and it was you know as a as a horse wrangler um that was what i did my first year i got promoted to guiding like really quickly within that year but your job is to take care of the horses and you, you, you can't haul feed in or fly feed in; it's too expensive and so you get let the horses go at night and then as the, the wrangler you get up at like five in the morning and you go tracking which is kind of cool because the the wrangling uh, the wrangling trains you for the skills you'll need as a hunter right because you learn how to track animals and really read the tracks and how fresh they are which i mean obviously which way they're going but like um and a a big thing is you know you would head out and sometimes the horses go a long way and you'd spend three hours like finding them um and uh you know you put a bell on them so you know you can hear them once you get close but the this like eureka thing like when you find warm horse shit as a wrangler like because you're touching the shit right and it's warm you're like they're close like they've got to be within 15 20 minutes of here right and then you would uh you know i would uh find them sometimes they run away and you got to like race around them catch the the lead like i was saying red big red was the kind of leader of the the pecking order catch big red put a halter <laughs> on them catch harley who's kind of second in command and then once you got like the two or three lead horses then the others will follow and and then you hop on bareback and ride them back into camp um you know clean them off get them saddled up watered and then go out hunting for the day and then uh, in the evening you let them go again and find them in the morning and,
1: and let me get this right you had 40 yeah so 40 is for
0: the trail and then you we split into four different groups or five different groups of like wow. eight okay. to ten horses okay. yeah
1: yeah so you make it you make it and then what you see these rich americans get flown in on a hell in a helicopter Oh yeah somewhere? yeah the
0: hunters are lazy as fuck i mean you know you're uh as the guide like you're doing everything short of wiping their ass um yeah. You know, and other than pulling the trigger on on shooting the animal, like, you know, you're skinning it, gutting it, you know, butchering it. And then they also want like a mount of the either like sometimes a full mount or like a mount of the head, right, to put on their wall back home. And it's like doing surgery. Like I'd use scalpels because you have to like turn cartilage structures inside out. The whole ear has to be inside out, the nose on a moose for God's sakes, strip out all the fat, salt it so it can go to the taxidermist. So it was it was a lot. And I mean. There was one guy who was kind of a salt of the earth guy. His his wife had married a rich guy. And uh, sorry, his daughter had married a rich guy. And so that guy, he'd always wanted to do a caribou hunt. So he'd kind of been flown up and he was, he'd helped me with everything, wash the dishes and stuff. But yeah, no, they were a pretty kind of toxic, old money, Republican, you know, pretty racist. Um I, 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 I you know, in terms of the more, we're talking about the morality of, of trapping and things like that. And the justifications, I mean, for this, it was, The Yukon had really good game laws, so we didn't waste any meat. And a lot of it got donated to like First Nations or to homeless shelters and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, but I was kind of like, I sold my soul to live in paradise, you know, and to like live this lifestyle. Like if you want to go on as a tourist and you want to like fly into these areas, I mean, it's these trips are like $10,000, even if you're not hunting or if you're doing a canoe trip up there or something. So it was a way to like get up there and get paid a little bit to live this lifestyle. Right. That's ancient, you know like mongolian (laughs) saddling up horses like pack horses all that kind of it really
1: is it seems like from a
0: different time (laughs) it really is yeah yeah and then and then it would be so bizarre like going back and you know i would work there from like may till october um like spring bear till like the end of the the moose hunt and then i'd come back and like university i'd missed the university start in september so i do university from like the winter semester like january till March or April, and then so I did one semester of university a year. But coming back to the city was crazy, right? Like part of it's like you don't see an advertisement for four months. You don't move faster than a horse can gallop for four months, right? Then you get in a fucking car and you're like, whoa, (laughs) man! And you drive past all. You get into the city and you drive and you drive past all this, uh, you know, all these signs and um, advertising, and all of a sudden you've gone from a life of like observation, right? Especially when you're hunting, you're constantly paying attention to the landscape and reading things and seeing things and learning what to look for, right? It's kind of like when a baby's learning to read or or just learning to see the world. You think of a newborn baby, right? They have no symbolic language to interpret an environment and they start seeing like lines and shapes and then that starts to become objects that they can identify and then that like continues to build that complexity. And when you're like living off the land in that way, you know, there's tons of stuff you miss. Like there's this saying I learned in medicine, which is the, the, eye cannot see what the mind does not know. Right. And so, yeah, you start learning, Hey, grizzly bears, like at the, at the edge of their territory, they'll tend to like beat up a tree and rub themselves against it and leave their hair behind on the, like the sap of a spruce tree. Right. Um, and you, and you're like, Oh shit, bear sign. Like there's, you know, there's this, there's that grizz and like, Oh, is it a big grizz or a little grizz? Like, what's the hair look like? You know, how old is it? Oh, like that track over there and you're just paying such close attention to the land and i would have these dreams at night like kind of shamanic dreams where i would have this bird's eye view of like flying over the hunting territory and seeing where the animals were you know and and it was like i scratched the surface in it (laughs) i scratched the very surface of like what i imagine like you know people who were hunter-gatherers like what their psychology was like what they lived how they interacted with the land what they could see right the mind i cannot see what the mind doesn't know like when you know a piece of land that intimately and, you know, okay, last year we killed a moose here and, you know, and they were like, they were here at that time of year because they like to eat this willow bud that like blossoms at this time of year or whatever. Right. Like, and you build up story and layer of story upon story upon story. And you learn like, you know, like that attachment to land is very real to me. I can really, really appreciate it. And I would, you know, and then you come back to the city and, your world is and, and it's also very like your like smells are a big thing right and when you're hunting um a lot of it is is, is being conscious of the, which way the wind's blowing right am I my upwind or downwind of the game right and um you know i don't want my scent to, to blow down to them and and alert them and you're listening a lot right listening to like wolves howling and sometimes you howl like a wolf like to you know for a certain purpose like if you want to call in a wolf or you know, so this like multi-sensory way of engaging with your environment. And it's not analytic. It's like your mind's sharp, but it's, you're just taking shit in and, and, and processing it. You're not forming like a lot of complex thoughts. And then you come back to the city and everything's moving so fast. The whole environment is completely artificial mm-hmm. and you're just swamped with ads and images and, and letters. And it's, you know, once you know how to read, it's really hard not to read a sign when you look at it. Right. Yeah. And it's just a dist- and it's pollution. It's just mental fucking pollution um so yeah it was a huge like a huge um like time traveling right between a way of life that was ancient and you know coming back to like toronto or or like uh, you know a city was was
1: wild and now you're an activist trying to get you know allow people to live in that city environment
0: yeah i mean
1: destroying the nature as well yeah it's uh i mean i wouldn't that's not exactly how i describe myself but um but I mean, that's kind of, I mean, you're not an eco modern. I mean, you're, I heard in the last episode you describe yourself kind of as a European eco modern. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's part of it, you know, like this human flourishing means essentially city living. I don't think it has to
0: per se. And I think that's a problem with eco modernism is like, and, and I think just fitting in with narratives of modernism and what like modernism has a, like a very built in, sense of progress you know and, and it's it can it's a valuable concept and it has achieved some really important things but it's also like it's like a it's like a technology dual use technology that has like a good side and a bad side to it and one of those is that there's this sense of like progress from hunter-gatherer to agriculturalist to like industrial to whatever right to space age and it's a kind of one-way linear thing and one is better than the next um, and I have an appreciation for like a, a lot of a lot of other modes and ways of being and I think that sense of a linear progress and almost like forcing people into climbing that ladder of progress is potentially like genocidal. Right. So I, I don't, you know, and it could favor sort of like forced transfers of population or, you know, the enclosure of the commons, um, in early capitalism or whatever, which dislocates people from the land. Like, you know, I, I, I think we have to be very careful and now we engage with it, but yes, I mean, there's a real tendency for people to urbanize. That's, that's, And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, a big part of that is because you can have a better quality of life in the city and get more education. If you're a woman, you can be less tied to domestic drudgery and you can get an education, control your fertility. So it's not that I want to force people to live in cities by any means. And, you know, I don't really want to live in the city, to be honest. Um, But, uh, you know, the whole eco-modernist premise and decoupling is favors kind of dense, dense urban living so that you can spare land that can kind of return to nature. And essentially there's critiques of nature, like the concept of nature, right? Like humans have always interacted and been involved in the natural landscape in some way, shape or form. Like, and you only have to read like Charles Mann's 1491 to understand that. No, like North America was not pristine wilderness. It was a managed landscape by quite a population dense um, group of indigenous peoples. But
1: in any case, um, yeah. So what do- I, Oh, sorry no go ahead go ahead do you feel like you got what you wanted like when you were an 18 year old kid like you wanted to just do something crazy and you want it you love the outdoors and you know you wanted not not necessarily to compensate for like feeling insecure but like you wanted to do something big yeah yeah just, no, i'm really like,
0: I'm, I'm super glad i did i mean there's parts of me now where. You know, I uh, being more of a science nerd now, like I wish I'd paid more attention in school or been more motivated or seen the reason to learn some things. And, and I'm glad that I ended up like I, I did basically just liberal arts, really just visual arts and kind of languages in high school and, and early university. And I ended up wanting a tangible skill, not just the ability to write an essay. Um, and so I ended up going into medicine and I had to go back to high school for that and, um, you know, do calculus and like chemistry and physics back to high school yeah in my early 20s wow. um, after all this yukon stuff i decided i wanted to be a doctor and uh yeah <laughs> i'm so glad i mean i and, and it was funny i was doing it and i was grinding through it and just doing it to get good marks i didn't really care about the subject matter and i didn't like I didn't, uh, like I'm learning chemistry now on a deeper level. Cause I'm teaching my two-year-old, the periodic table. <laughs> I saw that video you sent, <laughs> um, but now I'm like motivated. Cause I'm into like nuclear energy and I like, you know, and it's fascinating and I'm into like understanding the universe and, um, but I'm, I'm grateful for having, like, I'm fascinated with uh deep history and it's, it was really interesting to have like touched like the origin of our species as we were hunter-gatherers and to have lived that lifestyle and you know it was an interesting kind of like anthropological experiment and uh you know especially as i get a bit older now and my body breaks down a little bit i'm really i'm really glad that i did it then and i still like i want to go back to the yukon like i'm i'm kind of stuck in the city for a few different reasons but yeah I i would i think my heart is in the mountains and i'll get back there one day
1: so how long were you up? Oh, that's nice. So how, how long were you, you up there? Well, uh, so what for, age did you come back to civilization? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I,
0: so I went up for a year. Um, I think it was probably 2001. I remember September 11th coinciding with that. Okay. I didn't hear about September 11th till like, days and days later when I came out of the bush. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I did, like, a full year um and like a cycle of the seasons and it's interesting in the Yukon like living through a winter like there's lots of tourists that come up in the summer um and people kind of keep their distance um and don't make emotional attachments to people because they're just going to take off but if you stay for a winter people are like okay welcome into the tribe and you know and it's just this human solidarity of living through like you know three hours of sunlight every day and yeah. that's why there's a lot of bars really <laughs> things like that um i mean and i was i was mostly off in the wilderness for that time although i'd come to town like i'd hike my thirty kilometers to the highway and thumb my way into Whitehorse. And i remember like a, a a trucker would pull over and i'd get in and i was so chatty because i hadn't talked to anyone in like two weeks and i was just like in love with this human this like <laughs> you know kind of whatever this trucker dude you know and I was just like gushing because I'm like you're a human like I haven't spoken in weeks (laughs) you know like just like disinhibited like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway so I did a year and then uh and then I'd go back from uh like mm, I guess like April May until October um every year for like three or four more years and uh yeah and I'd come back into the South and, and do like a semester of university. <laughs> took me a long time to finish university, but, but I was, you know, I was working,
1: I was like working, hey, made
0: some money up there. Not a lot, but pay my way a little mean. bit. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that.
0: It was funny as we didn't get to the story at all, but that's totally uh, fine.
1: Uh-oh. Oh, well, no, I've I mean, taken a lot of your time so far. on.
0: I could gas on forever, but.
1: Hey, you if you want to tell me. that story, I'm all ears. Um, you know what? I actually I've
0: I've kind of recorded it separately. Um, like I'm uh, so basically like the the story is you can tell second, the, yeah, like, hear it the second year um that I went to work there, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like five of us pushing these 40 horses through hell. And uh two of the no, sorry, six of us, and then and two of them were like experienced cowboys, right? One of them he falls in love like a month before he's supposed to go up there he's like, I'm not going to the bush for four months straight and like leaving my sweetheart behind. Like I quit or like I pre quit. I'm not going. (laughs) And The other guy broke his ankle. And so in terms of like, they were like the most experienced I was super keen. I'd only done it for a year, but I like, if, if I want to learn something and there's someone who has like the knowledge, like I'm the best apprentice in the world. I'm like, you know, I'll stay up all night to like learn how to tie knots to figure out how to tie a couple boxes onto a pack saddle and, you know, and like learn my way around horses and yada, yada, yada. And so I was sort of like next in command in the hierarchy, which is not a good, because my boss was really cheap and he would just like hire hitchhikers on the side of the road that had never worked with horses before because he could pay them next to nothing. (laughs) So it was, I was the most senior guy having rode this trail once on the way in, once on the way out. And then, There's another guy who'd worked a year and knew a bit about horses. Um, And then two people that had never really ridden before. And we were supposed to push 40 horses through horse hell where they didn't want to go. Long story short, day one, we got split up and lost like 15 of the 40 horses. Day two um, reunited, but still down like 12 horses. Day three, Oh, and lost all our food because the food was on a pack horse and the pack horse had run through this forest fire oh, burn and knocked the knocked the boxes off its back. And so we didn't have any food. That was the first day. First day, yeah. We had some horse grains, so we ended up eating horse grain porridge. Um, and then uh day three, uh, the 16 year old kid who was like the most junior member of the this like team of what do you call them? Blue horns. Is that the people who don't know what they're doing? Greenhorns. Um he ends up getting like he was supposed to stay in camp while the rest of us went out looking for the lost horses. And he uh, ends up deciding he wants to be a hero and grabs a small sack of grain we had and goes down a trail and come boys like shaking it, trying to attract the horses. And he ends up um, shaking a grizzly bear out of its sleep and it charges him. And he, he throws the grain sack at the, at the grizzly bear and luckily the grizzly bear tears apart the grain sack and he tears off at a clip running and gets completely like swims a river gets completely disoriented and lost. And I come back from, you know, find, I found another six horses that day and I haven't slept really in like 48 hours and we haven't eaten much and I'm hallucinating and come back to camp and ask the other two people like, where's Tyson? And they're like, we don't know. And so this kid is lost for 48 hours and we are shooting guns off. We're trying to attract him back. We're, you know, we're lighting a big fire. We actually lit a whole like a 40 foot spruce tree on fire And it shot flames another 40, 50 feet above. It's called candling a tree. You hold a lighter at the base of a really dense spruce tree and the understory catches. And then it just, it was pretty wet. So we we didn't think we were going to cause the forest fire, but um, it was so foggy that he didn't see the smoke and didn't hear the gunshots. He thought they were like thunder or something. And um, yeah, in the end, uh, my boss was like, don't call search and rescue. Like, I'm going to fly tomorrow. I'll find him. And I was like complicit in that and feeling like I was the most responsible. I, like, you know, I was like, his death is on my hands as a 16 year old kid. It's my fault. Ended up breaking what my boss had told me and, uh, and called 911 and got put in touch with search and rescue. And I was hallucinating and I ended up on the phone call with our military, like the search and rescue technicians that were about to dispatch in a private jet from Southern Canada to the nearest kind of air base and then chopper in, um, and like, yeah, not parachute in, but they would have landed with their chopper and, and look for him and uh and i heard his voice like while i was on the phone they were like okay we're dispatching in five minutes like boarding the plane and i was like and i heard his voice and i'm like ignore it you're hallucinating and then uh and then i was like but i heard it again i'm like give me five minutes and it was him ended up finding him wow so he
1: came back he was like a little drowned rat yeah oh that talk about timing deus ex machina there a little bit
0: so that was like one, it was, and there was more adventure on that trail in. But that, that was a story I was going to tell. But it was really cool. To... And I was
1: on your way up second year. Second year, buddy. And you took, did you do the same trail each time? Yeah, so here's the, here's the same trail. We, we got him. We ended
0: up riding all the way in, but we were still down six horses. Wow. So my boss, my boss flew me back in his little bush plane with a saddle. And like a, a day or two of provisions and like landed on a lake that was kind of on the trail in. I jumped out, put the saddle on my back (laughs) and like, and and the plan was I needed to go find the horses. Right. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) and I ended up finding these six horses, saddling one of them, tying a few of them together and redoing the whole trail. Like the wasn't uh, luckily the first day, but they were through the bog, but um, yeah, the the, the next four days of the trail alone with these uh, six horses, it was.
1: And so that was a, that's insane. So that was a relatively short chapter of your life but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you carry that with you
0: oh i love it man and i, I hope my son's like as into the bush as i am because it's it's yeah like my you know i don't know m- not only my heart sings like when i'm in the mountains like, like i'm just i start singing like i just i love it wow
1: yeah well, thank you so much for sharing this and i'll yeah. definitely i'm at a point in my life where i'm making decisions about what to do i'll definitely t- be talking to you again about that <laughs> Sounds anyways good. Oh, i good. really appreciate your time and uh, I'll, I'll send you the so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna make a transcript and then kind of you know pretty it up a bit so it's not going to be just the raw transcript it'll sure. be, it'll be like a more flowy thing. Re- readable like shorter yeah title, and, we'll and then that, um come up yeah
0: with. like and and uh, you have my permission to i, I would actually it'd be kind of fun to post this to my Fourth podcast hey. key for the Fireside, so and and it just for my par- <laughs> like, just for my parents to like listen and stuff. I think they'd get a kick out of it. Yeah, you got and, it. All right, I'll do a good job with this. Yeah, I mean, don't just the raw recording is fine, but yeah. All right. Oh, fucking it. yeah! If you make a transcript, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll like publish that on my blog or something. All
1: right, awesome. It's cool. due. I mean, I, I've got to do it by tomorrow. So maybe I'll I'll send you a version that. I'll, maybe i'll spend a little bit longer on it making it good and you
0: I, you have like the ai tool to to like do most of the transcription for you right? yeah i
1: think zoom already does like a transcript thing. oh really yeah
0: because you might be able to get like there's a bunch of uh like really decent high-end like uh script yeah and, it, and it's it's so much better i think than what you'll get with zoom i don't <laughs> know i don't know if zoom, maybe zoom's amazing but um yeah. well, and since- uh and maybe you can do like a free trial kind of thing and then not buy yep. it um but, dude, it'll save you so much time.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to send you, like, a little a thing you got to sign. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that'll be easy. All right. Sounds good. Dylan. This was an – I loved hearing that story. That's amazing. All right. Thank you so much. No worries, man. Have a, great, have a good rest of your day. Talk soon. Yeah, peace, man. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and review on your podcasting platform of choice. We hope to see you again soon at Kiefer's Fireside.